It's Friday, June 9th, and this is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. If you're looking for a less carbon-intensive alternative to coal, you could do worse than natural gas. Gas-fired power plants output only about half the carbon dioxide emitted by their coal-burning counterparts. So if we're interested in climate change and we want to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions, shifting to natural gas is a potential, at least a step towards a solution. Here's the catch. The production, processing, and distribution of natural gas tends to release a lot of methane, which is an even more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. So when you account for methane emissions, natural gas really isn't much better for climate purposes than any other fuel. But it doesn't have to be that way. Most of those emissions result from what turns out to be a relatively small number of larger leaks along the supply chain. If you can identify and fix those leaks, natural gas becomes a much more attractive option. That's why Pennsylvania is joining other gas-producing states in requiring better monitoring of wells, compressors, and other operations. It's an opportunity for Pennsylvania, too, to lead in terms of thinking about developing sort of smart regulations that help address the problem. Natural gas as a climate-friendly energy source. We'll look at the potential as well as the barriers coming up. The Philadelphia Environmental Partnership Dinner is PAC's regional get-together for the southeastern part of the state. Billed as Philadelphia's premier environmental event, it'll be held next week at the Crystal Tea Room. Each year at the dinner, one of Philly's environmental leaders is recognized for their vision, commitment, and lifelong achievement with the Windsor Award. This year's Windsor Award goes to Carol Collier, who headed the Delaware River Basin Commission for more than 15 years before becoming senior advisor on watershed policy and management at Drexel University's Academy of Natural Sciences. I caught up with Carol Collier to reflect on her decades of work to protect and improve the region's watersheds. I've been really lucky to uh, to have a series of, of excellent jobs, but uh, I grew up at the Jersey Shore and was always a water rat you know, sailing, swimming, whatever. And so when I went to college, it was the first Earth Day. And I just brought home how many uh, issues there were in the environment. So I became a biology major and looking at environmental biology. And so that was the the start of the path. And then I, I got a job at University of Pennsylvania as a research assistant at the vet school because I couldn't find a job in environmental uh, work at that time. And I was able to take a, uh, a limnology course, the, the study of rivers, with Dr. Ruth Patrick. And Dr. Patrick worked at the academy and taught at University of Pennsylvania. And it just opened my eyes because here was a, a whole science on studying rivers and streams. You could get paid for playing in rivers. So uh, that, that sort of set my path and she was my mentor for, for 40 years. And I, I highly believe in uh, mentors. Um, and I was, I was able to get an internship at a uh, environmental engineering firm after I got out of grad school, actually while I was in grad school. And I, I stayed there, did a lot of um, environmental assessments, uh, both in streams, watershed delineations, those kind of things. And um, then I, you know, I was just ready for a switch. In mid '90s, I got into the the government sector. You talked about mentorship. What was the value of having a good mentor for you? What did you learn? And have you had opportunities to return the favor and mentor others? 
Yeah, I think I've had a number, and I still do. I still collect mentors. <laughs> um, but I think it's it's valuable what, just to see what kind of a career path exists when you're, you know, in, in your 20s and, and looking at different options. But having somebody who can be your backboard and, um, you know, have somebody to, to chat with as you're trying to figure, you know, different uh, different roads to take and and uh, what, it, what it might mean to a future career. And then also just uh, inspiration that, uh, you know, that this can work and you can make a, make a change in the world um, by, by following up uh, some of these paths. And I've, I've tried to uh, pass it forward. So looking back, what would you say is the biggest challenge that you've dealt with? Well, challenges are fun. Uh, you know, challenges make you grow a lot. I would say it was dealing with the uh, Marsalis uh, gas issues uh, while at DRBC, mainly because it was so divisive. You know, there was nobody that saw value in the middle. It was either a yes or no issue, and I've always been someone who tried to find a, a reasonable approach to things that protected the environment but still, you know, allowed uh, the economy to grow and the region to grow. And um, you, you couldn't have that kind of dialogue. But um, I think it's, you know, it's coming together. We're, we're going to find an answer. You were at the helm of DRBC for, for a while. How did you see that organization and, you know, and the issues that it dealt with evolve over that time? Yeah. Um, well, at the time, I was working for Pennsylvania DEP, first as the regional director of the southeast region, and then the governor asked me to head up his 21st Century Environment Commission, so I was sort of back and forth to Harrisburg. And when the, the job opening, I became aware of the job opening at DRBC, it just seemed like the perfect fit because it was a big watershed planning, which, which I love. I have a planning background um, and, you know, water and land oriented. I had an absolutely stellar staff, incredible staff to work with. And the, the whole idea of DRBC is pulling together um, entities. Uh, in this case, uh, my bosses were the, the governors of the four states and a general in the Corps of Engineers who represented the president, pulling them together to look at the high-level issues that couldn't be resolved from any one state. And it really is a, is a necessary uh, agency to have to really solve water problems because water doesn't respect political boundaries. Um, so looking at, you know, water quality issues, how do you keep clean water clean in the headwaters? Um, how do you protect the estuary from things like toxics, PCBs, or now there's a, um, an issue of, you know, how we can improve the dissolved oxygen since uh, we have breeding sturgeon and other really exciting, exciting things down there. But um, it, it, was, it was a great 15 years, and I think we, we really did some major accomplishments. And tell me a bit about what you're doing now at Drexel. I am, I'm having a lot of fun. My uh, major job is working on the Delaware River Watershed Initiative. Uh, that is the initiative funded by William Penn Foundation, working with 50 NGOs to improve water quality, aquatic communities, and human communities in the uh, Delaware Basin, looking at targeted geographic areas, especially looking at agricultural runoff impacts, suburban runoff impacts, 
where water quality is really good, how do we protect the forest and keep it from fragmentation, and then a more directed approach down in South Jersey to protect the aquifer. So the Academy received a grant to uh, lead the, the science, the monitoring efforts and assessments so that William Penn Board could actually see that um, the dollars they were contributing were making a difference on the ground. And I'm doing a lot of the um, what we're calling complementary strategies. So how do we work with municipalities, counties to um, look at you know more significant environmental ordinances or open space plans, et cetera? So it's uh, it's been great uh, great here and just as I mentioned Ruth Patrick before I'm now in the Patrick Center, so I've sort of come full circle to where I was in grad school. So it's it's uh, it's a great place to land. It's very apt. Looking ahead, what do you see coming down the road for, for the watershed, for the region? Uh, what are your, I guess, your hopes and maybe your fears, if any? Yeah, I, I have both. I, I have hopes because I think people are getting it, people from decision makers to, to landowners, that what happens on the land affects the water. So we have more interest in, you know, sort of to sustainability and doing it right. And I also have fears because I, I really do believe in climate change. And I think we, are, we have not seen the flood of record yet. And I'm not sure we've seen the drought of record yet. So there are going to be some major swings that um, we are going to have to deal with. And, and right now, I don't think we're prepared for that and, and really have thought through how it's going to affect so many different aspects uh, of our lives, both in the Delaware and, and, and globally. So I, one of my other jobs at Drexel is, is heading up the Environmental Studies and Sustainability Program for undergraduates. And so we're spending a lot of time on, you know, thinking about what we can do now, but um, really, um, how do we prepare for the future? What, is, uh, what does the Windsor Award mean to you? It, it was so exciting when, when David called me because I, I was lucky enough to be on the PEC board back when Kurt Windsor uh, was the lead, was the CEO, and he was he was such a gentleman. He had such a great sense, dry humor, but he always let you know where he wanted to get to, and <laughs> he didn't he didn't mince words. So I learned an awful lot of him from him. Uh, you know how to run an organization, and and what I really liked about Peck and the reason I wanted to be on the board was because I saw that. Peck understands that the world is not based on yes and no answers. It's, it's trying to find that path that causes no harm, but also allows the, the economy and the, and the region to move forward. And, and I think that's really important, and I think we've lost some of that lately. So I think uh, Peck and a few other organizations that get it uh, are just going to grow in value as we as the, the problems get more complicated. I mean, you look at climate change, you look at the uh, emerging contaminants, whatever, it's way more complicated than it was in the 60s or 70s just dealing with point source discharges. Um, so uh, it's, it's gonna take more of uh, PEC-type organizations to, to uh, really fix things. Well, Carol, again, congratulations on the award and you know, thanks for everything you've done for PEC and, and for Pennsylvania as well. Uh, thank you so much and I really look forward to next week.
Carol Collier will receive the Windsor Award next week at PEC's Philadelphia Environmental Partnership Dinner. Tickets and information can be found at PECPA.org. By the way, included in Ms. Collier's very long list of accomplishments, she was the very first guest on the very first episode of Pennsylvania Legacies back in August of last year. You can find that interview archived also at the website, again, at PECPA.org. Pennsylvania's natural gas industry is in a period of transition as the Commonwealth adopts new rules to control methane emissions. We're not the first state to take on methane, but we are definitely the biggest gas producer on the list. PEC is a strong supporter of the effort, which we've covered and will continue to look at on this podcast. But to understand why methane matters to the climate and to Pennsylvania's economy, you first need to understand some facts about the science behind it. For help, we reached out to our friends at the Scott Institute for Energy Innovation at Carnegie Mellon University, and they loaned us one of their top researchers. Professor Alan Robinson heads the Department of Mechanical Engineering at CMU, where he's been studying energy production for nearly 20 years, and he agreed to distill all that expertise down to a 15-minute crash course on natural gas and climate just for you. So get ready. You're about to learn everything you need to know about methane, climate, and Pennsylvania's changing energy economy. Here's Professor Robinson. If we're looking at using natural gas as an energy source for the country to, say, generate electricity, natural gas is a great source from a climate perspective because it has more energy per unit carbon, so its carbon intensity is less. And so here are some data, again, for, for the United States. It's showing carbon emissions or carbon dioxide emissions for an average natural gas and an average coal-fired power plant. And you can see that the natural gas-fired power plant has half the amount of carbon dioxide emissions. So if we're interested in climate change and we want to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions to try to address climate change, shifting to natural gas is a potential, at least a step towards a solution to try to address that issue. But there's, a, there's sort of additional layers of complication there, and this is where methane leakage comes in. And so the primary component of natural gas is methane. And so it's a molecule with carbon and four uh, hydrogen atoms. It's a tetrahedral-looking structure, and that's the primary component of natural gas. So about 90% of natural gas is methane. The concern from a climate perspective is that when we're transporting natural gas, we're, we're bringing it out of the ground, we're transporting it in pipelines, some of that natural gas leaks into the atmosphere and through engineered vents, but also just through you know, cracks in pipes and these sorts of things. And so some of it's escaping to the atmosphere, and so we worry about that from a climate perspective because Methane molecules are very effective greenhouse gases. Turns out that methane is even more potent than carbon dioxide. It has to do with the the structure of the bonds of the molecules. There's a window, uh, absorption window in the atmosphere, this narrow window where some uh, of the radiation escapes back into space. And that's how the Earth cools itself. And the issue is greenhouse gases are essentially closing that window as we add greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And so CO2 absorbs infrared radiation at the sort of edges of the window. So every CO2 molecule we add isn't as effective because we're already absorbing a lot of that infrared radiation right now. So the thing about methane is because of its bond structure, the way a molecule absorbs infrared radiation is basically by wiggling, right? So a photon will hit the the molecule and the bonds will absorb that and wiggle, essentially, is the way I think about it. It has a very different bond structure when you look at the two molecules. And essentially, the bond structure of methane means that it absorbs infrared radiation right in the middle of the window. So nothing else is interfering and every individual molecule has a much bigger impact 
than every individual sort of CO2 molecule. So if you compare a molecule of methane to a molecule of carbon dioxide, you're thinking about what the impact on, on the climate might be, it turns out a molecule of methane is about 80 times worse than a molecule of carbon dioxide. And that's just where it absorbs infrared radiation. And so what that means is, from a methane leakage perspective, is if we have just a little bit of methane leakage, we could offset that potential carbon dioxide benefit that we saw before. And this is sort of the controversy. It's more complicated that in the sense that the methane actually decays away in the atmosphere over time. And so, you know, how much worse it is depends if we're looking at a 20-year time horizon or a 100-year time horizon. So there are details that matter, and you need to be aware of those details as you think about different communities' claims. You know, if you want to look, make methane leakage look bad, use a shorter time frame. If you want it to make it look not as bad, then you use a longer time frame. But these are some of the details to at least be aware of. And so about 10 years ago, actually, when the sort of shale gas revolution was just taking off, there was a, a study that came out that sort of put forth this hypothesis that methane leakage from shale gas development was actually pretty significant. And that any climate benefit that we're getting with replacing coal-fired power plants with natural gas-fired power plants was actually eaten up by this methane leakage. And so this caused a lot of consternation. Uh, not only in the scientific community, but also in the public. And there were articles in the New York Times, Scientific American, Washington Post, you know, headlines like no climate benefit for natural gas and things like that. And so this raised a lot of concerns. But one of the challenges with this is that these studies were based on very little data. I mean, it was literally a handful of facilities they had information for, whereas there are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of facilities out there that are part of the natural gas system. We need to estimate the aggregate emissions from all those facilities. And this is where I got involved in it. So this came out. It really raised this question. We thought, wow, this was a great step for climate. And, but there's this concern about methane emissions. And so that's where myself and a team of us from Carnegie Mellon got really involved in the research. And what we did is we said, well, the real key question is we need to know how much methane is actually going out in the atmosphere. So we need to go around the country and measure methane emissions from all these facilities. And so we did this as part of a big project. And we probably measured methane emissions from four to 500 facilities across the country. So we went from having data for literally a handful or tens of facilities to hundreds of facilities. And that lets us make much more robust conclusions about how much methane is actually being emitted to the atmosphere. So what did we do? Well, we took out a, a, a van that had a lot of very sophisticated instruments on board, these laser-based sort of methane measurement instruments. And what we would do is we drive on roads that were downwind of these facilities, and we'd drive through plumes. So there'd be methane coming off the facility, we'd drive through this plume, and you'd see the concentration of methane in the atmosphere go up a little bit. And if you have very sensitive instruments, you can detect this. And you can use a mathematical model and take that information and convert it to what the methane emission rate is from the facility. So we did this at hundreds of facilities all over the country to get a sense of what the methane emission rates look like. So some are emitting very little and others are emitting a lot. And so that's going to be an important characteristic if we're thinking about this issue. How do we go about addressing it? I mean, clearly we want to think and look at addressing these high emitting facilities. So what if we take this information and, and use these factors of 80 that we were talking about before, this global warming potential? Essentially, there is a bunch of methane emissions. It eats up a bunch of the potential climate benefit, which is bad, but there's still a net climate benefit. So you get progress with respect to climate change by switching to natural gas, even with this leakage. So I think that's good news, and there's still uncertainty associated with that. 
But there's also an opportunity because if we can squeeze that down by reducing that leakage, we get more climate benefit. Not only do we get more climate benefit, but the companies get to sell more gas because that's their product and right now it's going into the atmosphere. And so I think there's a possibility for a win-win. And we'll talk about, you know, how do we go about, what does our measurements tell us about how do we go after that win-win. The final point from a climate perspective is this is really thinking about kind of a near-term transition, right? If we go from coal to gas, so we reduce our carbon intensity of our energy system. But if we're looking long term and to stabilize climate, we really need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 90% plus. So just going from coal to gas, even if we completely eliminate the methane, you know, we still have a long way to go. And so natural gas isn't the end solution, but it can be a nice step. And certainly getting rid of the methane would help. Well, we need to know something about where the methane's coming from. So this is just data from the northeastern Pennsylvania campaign. And I'm not going to get into the details of it, but what it basically shows is that 80% of the emissions are coming from 20% of the facilities. And so if we're thinking about reducing emissions cost effectively, we want to know what are those 20% of the facilities that are creating 80% of the emissions. Because if we could fix those facilities, we can get a long way to fixing the problem. And if we could do that effectively by identifying them, that would be a real win. And so I think that's the opportunity. So that was one of the things that we learned. Not only did we get emission rates, but we have this idea that it's the emissions are what we call very skewed. So how do we go out and screen those facilities? We use these IR cameras that, these forward-looking IR cameras that the industry uses a lot, and they're very nice screening tools. You can shine the camera and you get a detection, you know, is the methane, you know, methane coming, uh, being emitted from the tank. The challenge with, with the IR cameras is they're not very quantitative. They give you an indication that it's happening, but you don't know if it's a, if it's a super big leak or a super, or you know it's a super big or super small, but you don't know it's 15 or 20 is what you don't know in terms of what the emissions are. So that's one of the instruments that we use. The other instruments we use are these uh, laser-based um, absorption measurements. And these are actually very sophisticated instruments that are very, very sensitive. And so they're much, sens much more sensitive than um, what most companies are using right now for, for measurement. And the reason we need really sensitive instruments is we're measuring the emissions downwind in these plumes. And the nice thing about doing it in the plume is then you get an integrated measure of all the emissions that are coming off a facility. And a lot of the ways companies go and quantify the emissions is they do, they'll do an IR camera survey and identify all the leaks, and then they'll go measure all the individual leaks. And sometimes the leaks can be hard to get to. You know, they'll be at this top of the stack that's 50 feet off the ground, and oh, well, we can't get up there, so I guess we won't get that measurement. Um, or uh, the leak will be too big, or maybe you, don't, you miss it because your, your survey isn't, isn't comprehensive enough. One idea that's been done a little bit is actually to do airborne screening. And so you mount an IR camera on a helicopter or a UAV, and you can fly very rapidly over these, these facilities and screen all the facilities, as opposed to the ones that we got in six weeks. You can screen this whole field here in less than a week, and you can identify which are the facilities that have large plumes and which facilities don't. You can identify which ones that you'd want to go and address. And they've done this in some basins already. And they can screen thousands of facilities in, in you know, periods of, of you know, a week or a bit more than a week. And they usually find 2 to 4% of the facilities have these sort of high emitting sort of characteristics. You don't get the same level of data from the helicopters you do from the ground-based measurements, but I think you get enough information to start making sort of intelligent decisions about where you want to put your sort of uh, repair funds. So what if we sort of bring all this together? So again, this idea that 
I would argue that there's some win-win. So if we can move towards more natural gas-based energy system or reduce our fossil carbon emissions so it can be a win for climate, but there's this sort of penalty associated with the methane emissions that occur that sort of degrades that benefit. And currently it seems like it isn't degraded so much that it's worse than coal, but it's a big hit. And so we want to go from a climate perspective, we want to squeeze and reduce those methane emissions. The, the companies want to reduce the methane emissions as well because they want to sell that methane. So we can kind of pull the numbers and, and think about you know, what this means. And so if we think about, currently we sell about $100 billion a year in natural gas in the United States. That's rounded up a little bit, it's not quite that high. And if we're, if we're leaking, say, 2 to 4% of that gas to the atmosphere, that's 2 to $4 billion that's sort of on the table to potentially try to fix these leaks. And so if we could use that money as efficiently as possible by sort of targeting these high emitters, you know, there may be, and certainly studies suggest that it would cost much less than two to four billion dollars to sort of address those leaks. Companies would make more money. We'd reduce the sort of climate impacts. It sounds like a real great win-win situation. There are barriers. Obviously, there are barriers. There's contractual barriers. There's other barriers. I mean, there's all sorts of different contracts for gas. And so an example of one type of contract, so I run a a compressor station, and so I provide a service, right? I pressurize the gas, right? It's coming in a pipe, big pipe, and the pressure's been falling because of the friction in the big pipeline. I need to pressurize it to push it down, you know, the next 50 miles down the pipeline. And it may be that the company that's operating that compressor station that's pushing the gas along doesn't own the gas. And so in that case, they, they may not have an incentive to reduce their emissions. They have some contract that says, well, I can't have emissions over this level or something like that. But you know, there isn't that incentive because they're not going to capture the savings necessarily because whoever owns the gas sort of captures the savings. So there is money on the table, but there's this, so it can be these disconnects between who owns the leak and who owns the gas, right? And, and if you fix the leak, you're going to save the gas, but the person paying for fixing the leak isn't necessarily the person who is, so there are these types of disconnects. And that doesn't occur everywhere, right? I mean, there are places where things are aligned. And there's certainly companies that are working hard at reducing their methane leakage because they see the sort of the value proposition doing that. But in, in other sort of parts of the, of the sector, you know, those, those disconnects sort of exist. And so to address those, certainly there's a role, right? I mean, that's part of the role of government in the, is to try to address these sort of discrepancies and, and how do we how do we distribute the resources in a way that we can solve the problem and everybody sort of comes out ahead. And I may be a technological optimist or something like that, but I certainly am, I, th I certainly think it can be done. I mean, there's a big pile of money that's available, but there are a lot of different players and, and you know, it's not just a handful of companies. There are a lot of companies that are involved in, in you know, so it's not trivial. I don't want to trivialize it. But there is an opportunity here, I think, by working together that we could really address this problem. In terms of technologies, sort of sensing technologies, I mean, there are definitely companies here in Pittsburgh that are developing. We're partnering with some of those companies that test their devices out in the real world. We're, say, we're partnering right now with People's Gas, studying uh, methane emissions from the distribution network in Pittsburgh and are driving around and mapping leaks in Pittsburgh. And as part of that, we're working with a local company, as I said, that's developing a lower cost sensor and they're interested in what their performance is and they don't have access to some of this very sophisticated research grade instrumentation. So that's an example of what we're doing here. But I think it's an opportunity for Pennsylvania too to lead in terms of thinking about developing sort of smart regulations that help address the problem and save money 
you know, there are several states that are doing that. I think Pennsylvania, we have an opportunity to do that. Certainly thinking about doing it a little bit differently, you know, can we capture this sort of high emitter aspect and, and target that would be really exciting. Alan Robinson is professor of mechanical engineering at Carnegie Mellon University, where he serves as director of the Center for Air, Climate and Energy Solutions. He's also the star of a series of videos we've put together for our latest project at Peck. It's a new website just launched this week exploring all the reasons why curbing methane emissions makes sense for Pennsylvania, not just for the climate, but for the economy, and also why that goal is already well within reach. I encourage you to check it out at change.com. However, take note that is spelled CH4NGE. CH4 is in methane. A little typographical humor there. Maybe doesn't entirely translate to audio, but nevertheless, it's at CH4NGEchange.com. And in any case, if that's too confusing, you can find the link, as always, at peckpa.org, where all our past episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies also live. You can get caught up on our back catalog there and learn more about all of Peck's work across the Commonwealth. Send us your feedback by email legacies at peckpa.org, or you can get in touch on Twitter at peckpa. We're also on Facebook. Thanks so much to the Scott Institute for Energy Innovation at Carnegie Mellon University for help with this episode and with the aforementioned website. We'll be back next Friday with another new episode of Pennsylvania Legacies. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening.